We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this wonderful Sunday. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we're talking about worship today, Uh, what you are doing right here and right now. You might be able to guess this, but one of the very first questions that I usually get, um, and actually it happened yesterday, we did a booth at Miner's Day, and you get to talk and chat with with lots and lots of people, probably hundreds of people, Uh, and one of the most common questions that I get, that we get, is, what is worship like? And, and I think we get that, right? We understand that on some level. Uh, um, if you've maybe grown up in the church, you know that worship is generally on Sundays, sometimes other days. But even for unbelievers, even for your, your family, your friends, your neighbors, those that don't know anything about Christian, Christianity or anything about Christ, they generally know one thing about us as Christians. It's that we get up on a Sunday morning and we go to a place and do some things. Right? That's generally what they know. And so the, the most common question I usually get is, is, what is worship like? What do you do at worship? Right? So it's a great question. And it's, it's, I think, the most obvious question to ask, especially for someone that's, that's trying to learn more about us. But it's also a little bit difficult sometimes to answer because there's immense amounts of depth that go into what brought you here on a Sunday morning. What brings you back here Sunday by Sunday, right? Ultimately, worship is about the things that we value, right? Ultimately, worship on a Sunday morning or if it's an evening worship or whenever it happens is about where we assign value and assign time to even, right? So I brought something for you here today. This is a 26 and a half pound jar of pennies, okay? Uh, I know it weighs that much because I put it on the scale and because I'm fairly weak, so I have to use two hands to hold it, so. Uh, 26 pounds of pennies, but um, these are not just regular pennies. This is 26 pounds of Canadian pennies, okay? Now, some of you are like, oh, they're not worth near as much, right? Well. Interesting story. Uh, In 2014, or 2012 rather, uh, when I was a pastor in Toronto in Canada, Canada decided to do away with their penny. So they stopped making pennies. Um, This was one one of the headlines. Death of the penny. Actually, yeah, last production I think was 2013, right? Uh, So Canada got rid of their penny. Do you know why? What was that? Yeah, cost too much to make, right? So when we talk about, I'm not going to keep holding this. I'm going to set that there. When we talk about uh, the penny, there is an assigned value to it, right? Of one cent. But as of 2013, you want to know how much it cost for Canada to make a one cent penny? About 1.6 cents, right? So for every penny they produced, they lost 0.6 of value, right? Just to put those out. Uh, the other problem that they said, they threw a little bit of blame on Canadians. And they said that Canadians were just hoarding pennies. So like literally billions of pennies and every single home had like jars of pennies like that. And so they said, you guys just can't keep hoarding pennies 
and we're not going to keep producing them because we're actually producing them at a loss. So in 2013, they said no more pennies are, gonna, are going to be made. So how much do you think this is worth? 26 pounds of Canadian pennies. Can you guess? Yeah, Ryan says zero. Yeah, zero. Which are both really good guesses. Um, because, and this is where I, as your pastor, I have to... So in 2013, the Canadian government said, we are not going to produce pennies. And secondarily, we are going to devalue the pennies you have. So if you don't turn them in, in six months, they're going to be worth zero, not even a cent, right? They're not even going to be worth a cent. So uh, that was what they had threatened to do. As I was preparing for this sermon, and I Googled that, do you know what the Canadian government backed off of doing? Devaluing their penny. They didn't actually do it, right? They said they were going to do it. They got tons of them turned in, but they didn't actually do it. So they're still worth a penny in Canada. You can still turn them in. Okay, so now what's your guess? How much do you think 26 pounds of Canadian pennies is worth? So they do have value still. They do have a one cent value. Any guesses? What was that? Five dollars? Higher. Less than a hundred. Yeah, less than fifty. This is about this is worth about thirty-seven dollars and seventy cents. Okay? Thirty-seven Canadian. <laughs> Touche. Thirty-seven seventy, right? Canadian. Okay. So would you give me thirty-seven seventy for this jar of pennies? Yeah, maybe not, right? Because carrying around 26 pounds of pennies doesn't seem very awesome. What if I said that within that 26 pounds of pennies, it contained one of these pennies? A 1936 single dot Canadian penny. This penny, most recently, sold at auction for $360,000. Okay, so now you're thinking... I'll maybe give you 37 bucks for that, right? Just the chance of maybe that there's one of these in there, right? The point of all this is, is that we assign value to things, right? Those values sometimes change. Uh, some of you have no time at all for Canadian pennies. Some of you maybe you said, I would have given 40 bucks for it just as a curiosity. Uh, some of you might maybe thought, well, maybe I'll find a rare penny in there and it'll have even more value. But we place value on things. And today we're not going to talk about pennies. We're not going to talk about money. But we do talk about uh, um, the time we use and the value that we express by how we use that time. And that's intimately connected to how we worship and why we worship. Most importantly, what we value. So today, that's what we want to look at. I'm going to break up our text, uh, Psalm 95, into three different ways. Uh, we are going to look at uh, the what of worship. So we'll just talk uh, high level from Psalm 95, what worship looked like for those Old Testament believers. Then we want to talk a little bit about the why, because um, the things you value drive the things you do, how you spend your money, how you use your time, and the people that you spend your time with, Right? And lastly, we'll spend a little bit of time on just the how, right? How do we worship? What does worship look like a little bit? So 
Uh, so for those that want to follow along, those are kind of the points that we're going to look at today. Uh, now our text is from uh, Psalm 95, and as I was reading it, my guess is that for some of you it, it sounded familiar, and maybe some of you thought it was vaguely familiar. Uh, if, you ever grew, if you grew up in the church, uh, uh, any historic Christian church, uh, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, anything, um, most liturgics, lit- liturgy, uh, used at times Psalm 95 for morning praise. Right? So if you've heard this before and it rings a little bit of a bell, that might be where you heard it. So Psalm 95 was commonly used throughout Christianity for a long, long time uh, within liturgy, in church on Sunday mornings, right, in morning praise. But it really is, is bringing us back even later, or even earlier, I should say, uh, to, to the Jews and how they worshipped. It's a wonderful description of how the Israelites viewed worship of their God above, right? And we want to look at kind of three different things in that. Um, three different areas that, that the Jews felt were important to address when they would come together for worship. So if you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that with me. I'm going to begin, we're going to kind of take almost the whole section, almost one through six all together, because we're going to pick out some, some words from that. So, uh, so we start out here. Um, Psalm 95 separates into kind of two nice chunks. So Verse 1 begins with the word come, and verse 6 begins with the word come. That is where we get the term venite, which is the terminology for Psalm 95 within Christian liturgy. It means come, right? So it means we are, we are going to gather together. So you see it in verse 1, you see it in verse 6 as well. So for the Israelites, um, this is what they did. They said this, this is part of who we are and part of what we value about our God above, and part of of our testimony to the nations around us, that we gather together in worship, that we come together in worship. So Psalm 95, both of those things said, come, right? Right? Come together. But then what's fascinating is that they address, and their worship addressed kind of three different areas, right? So we talk about emotions, so how does worship affect our, our emotions, right? How does it uh, work with our reason? And lastly, how does it affect our will? So emotions, reason, and will are what we look at a little bit. So we talk about emotions. Here's where you find some of it, right? Uh, so we have the, the call to worship, come, right? Come, let us sing. But then you notice you're singing not just words, right? But imagine that. You sing with joy, right? So there's emotion there, joy, right? Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. There is an aspect of thanksgiving in our worship, right? Um, We are extolling God, right? We are raising Him up. And so um, for the Israelites in Psalm 95 and in their worship, there was joy, right? Worship was not, um, it was not meant to be like like, uh, taking NyQuil, Right? Okay? Here's what NyQuil will do. You take it, and you know it's supposed to make you feel better, and the worse that it tastes, the better you're supposed to feel, right? Right? But I think there's a danger at times for us as believers to picture worship as that. Say, I go, 
and it doesn't taste very good, and I don't need to smile or actually find joy in it, but I know it's doing me some good, right? Well, the Jews would have said that there is joy in their worship, right? Is that the only emotion that's involved in worship? No, right? And you know that too. But joy is there. But there's also sorrow. There are times when we, when I see you, at points during songs, at points during services, and even for myself, when it is not joy we're feeling, but it's pain. And it's sorrow. And when you see tears, and when we, when we consider our own sinfulness, right? And who God is. But in worship, there is emotion, right? Uh, worship addresses our emotions, okay? Second part, though, it also addresses our reason on some level. So the psalm writer actually throws us back to uh, um, this, this picture of, of creation and of authority, right? So who exactly are we worshiping when we come together? What joy are we, ought, ought we to take from that? So he throws that back to that idea of, of creations, right? He says, our God is a great God. He's a king above all gods. So the Jews are saying, um, if you're talking about a hierarchy of authority, our God is not just a king. He's not just a pharaoh. He's not just an earthly leader, but he is the king of kings. He is the creator God. He was there at the beginning and will be there at the end, right? Then uses some illustrations from the natural world around us, right? Which the, um, the Jews often do, especially the book of Psalms, talks about the depths of the earth uh, up to the mountain peaks, the seas, and ultimately that God is our creator. And so on some level, uh, the psalm writer is saying to us, take a look around you, understand the complexity in which you live, the world in which you live, your own bodies, whether you go down to a, a, a microscopic level or to, to the largest level you can in the universe, what we see over and over and over again is wisdom, is design, right? And is the fingerprints, the echoes of a creator and of a God, right? And the king above all kings. And so the writer to Psalm, of Psalm 95 is saying, not only do we come together and, and does it touch our emotion, right? Joy and sadness and all those things, but it also touches on our reason of what we see around us, those fingerprints of God. But the last one also talks about our will because we are participatory in what we are doing here this morning. When I start out worship and I say you could have been anywhere in the world and you chose to be here, it's because you made a choice. Your will was involved. Colorado is remarkably beautiful and the aspen trees are now starting to change colors. And you could have gone into the mountains on a Sunday morning instead of gathering here with other believers. And so your will was a part of it, right? Uh, so the writer of Psalm 95 recognizes that, right? He says, um, he uses the word come again, right? So he says, this is an act of your will. You've chosen to do this. Talks about bowing down in worship and kneeling, right? So these are our choices that we get to make as believers in worship on a Sunday morning. And so when we talk about worship, uh, here at CVL or within Christianity, the psalm writer urges us to look at it and, and that worship addresses the whole person. So it addresses you emotionally. It addresses your reason and it addresses your will. And so different aspects of the service address all of those things. But it is meant to uh, 
to address the whole person, not just aspects of it. That term, worship, uh, actually comes from the old English word uh, meaning worth-ship, right? And so now we see a little bit when we're talking about assigning value to something, right? So worship, the choice you made this morning, says something about what you value. It says something about that, what you find that has worth. The New Testament word for worship is proskuno, uh, from the Greek, which means to um, to prostrate oneself out in front. So uh, literally forehead to the ground in front of someone. So uh, you think about that, especially within Old Testament times, New Testament times, uh, how if you came into the presence of the king or queen, you would bow. Any of you watch the uh, um, the the things going on in Great Britain uh, with Queen Elizabeth's death and and, uh, the, and the king, right? Um, I'll admit I have not watched uh, as much just because life has been remarkably busy, but um, my guess is that in some of those ceremonies that are happening now and will happen, you will see kneeling, you will see bowing, right? So that is a physical way that we ascribe value to someone or to a, to a position. That's true within Christianity as well for us in worship. But when's the last time that you laid down on the ground with your forehead to the ground in front of someone? Not willingly, right? Maybe if you're totally worn out from an exercise or something like that, right? Maybe if your knees went out or your back is bad, maybe you went down, right? But the truth is, I, I think that's a little foreign to us, especially here in America, that idea of kneeling before someone or someone's title or authority. But the truth is, Across our world and throughout history, that was, that was common, wasn't it? And it was a, a recognition of the worth of that person or that position. Okay, so what does that mean for us when we talk about worship? We may not physically kneel down when you come to church, but you are assigning worth to someone, right? Specifically to our God above. And, and this is not a, a forced Submission, right? This is not something that you, are, you, are, you, you absolutely have to do, but this is a, a willing uh, um, submission to our God above. And when we do that, this act of coming together, it says something about what we value and specifically who we value, which kind of leads us to our next point, right? Uh, we talk a little bit about why we worship. Because really, at the heart of it, that's where we need to get to. So what would cause you to do something like that? To, to um, kneel before anyone or anything? Well, I think it's an understanding of value, isn't it? And here's the reality. All of you kneel or bow or worship something or someone. We all do. Our entire world does, right? Uh, um, everyone worships something. Everyone bows down to something, right? Uh, whether it's, it's Christ within Christianity, maybe another religion, maybe it's their career, maybe it's a spouse or a loved one, maybe it's their children, um, but everyone in this world worships something. Everyone in this world, just kind of like how we talk with the kids, ascribes value to something. And something in your life has that kind of top perch of value, right? How do you find it? 
want to know how you find the thing that you value most? There's a few ways, I think, that we can get insights into our hearts and where we're at, right? Uh, the first is that the things you value oftentimes are effortless, okay? So you, you don't have to... You don't have to like find time in your schedule for these type of things, right? You just do them because you love them, right? Uh, the things that you value the most are, are effortless. Maybe it's, maybe it's time with your spouse. You say, this is just what I do because I love him or her so much. Maybe it's your kids, right? And you say, um, um, I am literally going to be scheduled to the hilt uh, around my child's schedule, right? And I love to do it. Right? It's effortless. Maybe it's a hobby, right? Uh, um, maybe you enjoy skiing or, or whatever it is, right? Going into the mountains, whatever it is. Um, oftentimes we can find what we value most by looking at what is effortless for us. You don't have to schedule it in. You just do it and you hope you can do it and you love to do it, right? And when you do it, it is absolutely a joy and effortless to do, okay? So I think that's one place to look. Second place is what are the things that you worry about? that cause you anxiety, right? That keep you up at night. Those are the things that we, on some level, value. Now, this is a little negative side to it, right? But the things that you worry about, maybe it's finances, maybe it's your job, maybe it's how your kids are going to turn out and the choices they're going to make, maybe your grandkids. Maybe it's within a relationship between a husband and a wife, right? You worry that you will lose the love of that person. At times, does it keep you up at night even? Right? So if we want to find the things we value, I think the things that are effortless to us give us some insight, but also the things that we worry about, that we fret about, right? that we can't stop thinking about. Right? That gives us a little bit of insight as well. And the last one, what are the things that you'll fight it for? What are the things that if somebody or something you feel threatens that, you'll fight them for? Now, I don't mean like physically fight. Well, sometimes that does happen, right? But you'll lash out, right? You'll strike out. You'll do anything you can uh, to discredit someone that may, you may feel are threatening the thing that you value the most. What's fascinating is this sometimes happens for us as Christians as we open up the pages of Scripture. Because guess what? There are parts of Scripture that are going to challenge things that we highly value. There are beliefs that we have that Scripture confronts that at times we will be tempted to fight against. And where does that temptation go? Well, sometimes it's to push Scripture out of our lives at all, right? Sometimes it's to, to, to simply kick it to the curb and say, well, there must be something flawed with our God or our sacred text or the Bible itself because I value this far too much to submit myself to what God says is good and right for my living. So, when we talk about worship, we really have to understand what we value and where we place value. And I think each one of those can give us a little bit of insight into the things we value. Now, those things aren't necessarily bad, right? 
We talked, I talked about kids. I talked about relationships. Uh, we could talk about finances that are blessings from our God above. We can talk about all those things. They aren't necessarily bad. But if any one of those, if we value any one of those more than our God above who blesses us with those things, well, then we've run into trouble, right? Now, God has been supplanted by a thing, uh, by a way of life, or even by a person. And so when we consider our value or the value of things, as believers, we have to consider that. Are there things in your life that are gaining a foothold that would fall under one of those categories that are in danger of pushing Christ and His Word and His truth from your life? If so, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to pay attention to that, right? Now, what's the remedy? It's Christ, right? It's Christ. It's, it's Christ and the value that He places on you. Because through His ministry, through all that He did, the number one thing, the thing that was most valuable as He hung from that cross was you. As His life drained out of His body, it was you that was on His mind. As Christ uh, um, suffered abandonment and separation from God above and all the blessings that God has, complete isolation, the reason He did that was you. And so if we want to talk about value, God valued you. Christ valued you more than His own life. And here's my argument. That's a God worth worshiping. That's a God worth uh, kneeling before. That's a God worth uh, um, putting our heads to the, to the ground in front of. Right? A God that was willing to lay down His life for you and for us. Your career, your spouse, your kids, your bank account, your hobbies, none of them will die for you. Sooner or later, they will all fall away to the wayside, right? The only thing that remains is Christ and God our, our Savior above. And so the reason for worship is because of the value that our God has placed on you, right? Nothing short of eternal life and forgiveness of sins. So that's why we worship, right? That's the motivation for coming on a Sunday morning, right? It's not because I am the best preacher of all time. You can find better ones, right? It's not because Eric and the worship team's music is the best music you've ever heard of all time. You can find better music other places, right? It's not because we are all the most friendly people that you've ever run into in the world. Although you guys are all really remarkably friendly, so, right? Um, but the truth is, it's not about any of those things, right? It's about our God above and giving Him honor and worth and doing that together with brothers and sisters and saying we are going to collectively do this and assign value to something that is so important, right? Literally, eternal life. That's why we worship. Now, what does worship look like? Remember at the beginning of my sermon, I said one of the most common questions is what does worship look like? That's what people want to know. Um, the truth is, Scripture doesn't give us any detailed uh, liturgical rite. It doesn't give us any order of how we are to worship. 
right? Believers throughout Scripture have worshipped in different ways, but I think that there are some good rules of thumb or principles that are biblically drawn that lead us to do what we do on any given Sunday morning. Here at CBL, these are the ones that kind of guide our Sunday morning worship. First and foremost, every service is Christ-centered. That's the point of it. That's why we come on a Sunday morning. It's for Christ. It's to hear of Christ. It's to understand Christ and to leave with Christ in our hearts every single time. The second one is, is that it's word-focused. So yeah, we, we, we read the scriptures, right? Um, we read the text. We expound the text. The text is central to what we are doing, right? Third one is that it is communal. Pandemic taught us that a little bit. You can, you can, you can kind of worship at home in front of a screen, but can you really? Because there's something communal that happens when we come together with people, right? When we see their faces, when we see each other's faces, right? So there is, there's a communal aspect to that. Um, you come to church uh, not primarily for yourselves. This isn't a, a cafeteria where you come and I'm going to pick this and pick that and I'll get my God fixed and then I head on my way. The truth is you come for your God above to assign value to Him and secondarily for the people around you. For those that are hurt and suffering and struggling, right? So you don't come to church for yourself. You come for God and you come for others. And you want to know a really amazing thing? God will take care of you after that. When our priorities are in line like that, He'll provide everything that you need, right? The last one is accessible. Uh, We talk about um, the ability for anyone, and we've got visitors here today, right? And I don't know all of your backgrounds. Sometimes it's church. Sometimes you've never been in church in your entire life. We've had uh, families that are here that have never been in church, children that had never heard the name Jesus or, or opened a Bible, right? And so when we come here on a Sunday morning, when we do this communal thing called worship, that outsiders and unbelievers uh, know that there's at least one thing Christians do. They do something on Sunday morning. When we do that here, we try to make that accessible. Okay? And when I say accessible, I mean a couple things. Number one, um, that it, it, you can see yourself there. Okay? Say, I can, I can see myself here. Um, number two, that it's participatory. That you're involved. Yeah, we ask you to sing. You only sing in your car or in the shower, right? Guess what? You get to sing here, right? Uh, um, that it's participatory, that you're, you're a part of it, right? The last one, though, is, is that it, you can find entry points into a, a greater depth of Christianity than maybe you would have otherwise, right? To be introduced to the, a concept of, of confession and absolution, of the Lord's Prayer, of the creeds, of connecting ourselves to Christianity and Christians that stream back all the way to the cross. And so when I say accessible, it's those things that connect you to something that is far bigger than yourselves. But lastly, what happens here really is meant to empower what happens out there and in your lives. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so what we do collectively here today travels with you as you assign value to your God above, as you live your life, uh, as, it, as it, it, 
it dictates how you make choices, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you treat the people around you. Ultimately, what we do here communally walks with you in your life, and every single day is an act of worship, right? It's an act of worship. The words you use and the ones you choose not to use. The reactions that you have, the people you reach out to, how you treat those around you, all of these, all of these choices become acts of worship to our God above. So, worship on a Sunday morning. Ultimately, it's about value. And what drives all of that is the value that you have in Christ. Sins forgiven, eternity, heaven assured. I pray that leads you to worship, not only in your daily lives, but also leads you back here, where we're able to be strengthened in God's word, reminded of the love that we have, and sent out to worship him in every aspect of our living. Amen.